If you're like me, you love and miss that golden era of Christian music. From the Jesus music of the 70s, the monster vocalists of the 80s, and the creativity and risk-taking of the 90s and early 2000s. I'm Andy Chrisman, and for the past four decades, I was privileged to be smack dab in the middle of this crazy and beautiful thing that we call CCM. As a member of the group for him, I got to know so many great people with even greater stories. And I don't want to keep these stories to myself. That's why I created One Degree of Andy, so you can join me as I reminisce with my friends and colleagues. My hope is that as you experience these conversations, you'll go back and listen to that golden era of music and fall in love all over again, just like I have. This is the One Degree of Andy podcast. I want to give you a heads up off the top here. This conversation is kind of all over the road compared to other podcasts. I asked my friend Travis Cottrell, who is a successful artist in his own right, to join me and talk about whatever comes to mind and to ask me questions as well. So we're going to kind of flip the script here just a little bit. Now, this is a longer podcast than normal, but I, for one, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I hope you do, too. Before we get started, I want to say hello to a few of our listeners April in Bristol, Tennessee, Aaron in Plano, Texas, and Michael in Spring Hill, Tennessee. They all correctly guessed who a few of my upcoming guests would be and are receiving a signed piece of memorabilia from my archive. So give me a follow on social media so you can have a chance to win as well. Also, if you're loving these podcasts and would like to support what we, meaning me and my production team, are doing, just go to andychrisman.com and consider becoming a financial supporter of the podcast. And now... On to one degree of Andy. So probably of all the podcasts I've done up to this point, I, I really don't know where this is going to go. Just <laughs> because every time Travis and I get together, we talk about pop music. We talk about truth. We talk about current events. We talk about heated mattress covers. I mean, I don't, <laughs> you know, wh- where this is going to go, I don't know. And that's that's why I'm, I'm looking forward to this Um Travis, you're, I think the first time, and I know I've met you many, many times over the years, but the one time I remember really sitting down and having a conversation with you was at Estes Park, and you came up to talk to me, and I just thought, okay, he's going to want to talk about for him, and it wasn't. You wanted to talk about truth. Correct. And you knew more about truth than I did, and I was in the stinking group. Yes. And you're like, you remember this part and that time? I'm like, no, I don't remember that. But that's the kind of stuff I'm looking forward to talking about today, wherever this goes. So welcome, <laughs> my good friend Travis Cottrell, oh, to gosh. the One Degree of Andy podcast. That's so here. funny. I'll never forget <laughs> that moment because I was like, I knew I was right about something. And I'm, uh, here I am talking with my one of my vocal heroes. And who? Who, were, who was that? You. Oh, okay. I just wanted you to say it. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> Dang it. Oh my gosh, so bad. So anyway, I'm like, am I going to dig my heels in and be right? Or then it wasn't that heavy of a moment. I was like, yeah, I happen to know that 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 song was on that truth record. And you're like, I don't think it was. I was like, okay, he'll figure it out. And then you, I know you were right. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you're right. Yeah. 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 Because you you always are about this. (laughs) So yeah. So why truth? Like, why were you such a big fan of truth? You know, the like truth. a super fan, and they're I not was many a super of you guys. fan. And I will say it was a narrow, like I had a window, 
And but the second the window opened, it was actually 1988. Okay. So it was kind of like I like from that moment on when I, I, I sang in this group in college. So I went to college, went to college, I sang in this group called Witness, the Baptist mm-hmm. State Convention in North Carolina. And we were like a mini truth. Yeah. And I our, remember Witness actually. Yeah, because we, yeah. we sang at the Palladium together at Carowinds. Oh my gosh. Wow. Oh was yeah. that was that Richard did was Richard Kyle there from the oh. the Jaws from uh Yes, he was there. From the James and Bond movies. Javi Mason and him and yes. you guys. Oh and my us. gosh, I do remember that. Yeah. I'll never forget because I was on the side of the stage. You went, now I can't go. And you dropped to your knees. And I was uh, like, okay, here yeah. we go. We're all, we're all rapturing out right past the roller coasters. I thought it was so cool then, going to my knees the first time on that. And, and, and it was. I got mercilessly mocked afterwards. You did. And everybody, of course, me, you didn't. And, well, but everybody backstage in the group. Yeah. Which is they'd come over to me and have a conversation to me, just fall on their knees. <laughs> well, and, yeah. But then Roger loved it. He's like, no, you got to keep doing that. I'm like, right. oh, great. So, but, yeah. Yes. And there you were on, on your knees with that <laughs> mullet, killing it. <laughs> High B flats and mullets. I mean, what else did you could you want in 1989? Well, um, not, not much more than that. That's for sure. Yeah, so we, uh, so I met you then, but you didn't, mm-hmm. but you didn't meet me then. That That's was because I was on. famous. You were famous. Yeah. yeah. Truth famous. Yeah. <laughs> which is, it's a whole different not, thing. Which is a whole other thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but in, in the, in the, in the realms, I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it was like 1988. And so the record was now and forever. Yes. That was the first record. So then I went back and grabbed, you know, still the truth. Uh-huh. What was right before that? Um, Still the truth, uh, making it matter. Making it matter, yeah. Uh-huh. Which had Travis Laws. Yep. And, oh, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, uh, Lisa saying, I've just begun to fight. Oh, my gosh. That's some great stuff. That's some great stuff. Yeah. I went all the way back to like second to none. Yeah. And so I had a new heart on, on it, right? Yes, a new heart. Yeah. That was the first song that I was given to sing. When I joined the group, that so when I, I got on the bus and they gave me this, this binder that had like 50 songs in it and I had to memorize every chart, both leads and backgrounds before I could get on stage for a concert. And I would sit in the bus and listen to rehearsal tapes of, you know, from concerts of the person yeah. I was, being, I was replacing Mike Eldred and, um, that Roger gave God. me, oh, wow. That was Mark. Oh, was that, didn't they share it? Oh, maybe I'm wrong. No, that was all Mark. That, that, okay. yeah. Uh, I think Mark talks about that in the upcoming uh, For Him podcast. He talks about um, that was the first thing that he sang, and he wasn't even truth yet. Roger brought him in and had him sing "Lamb of God" on on that oh, album. My gosh. But they gave Roger gave me a new heart, and I remember the other guys were not happy about okay. it because that was kind of one of the big songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Um, did they know you were just beginning? Oh my gosh. Those are just, though, I have vivid memories of those years, but I also have very, it's very cloudy. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, again, think about taking, we were talking about this before we started rolling, is taking the knowledge that we have now in our 50s and taking it all the way back to those days right. we would have ruled the world. Yes. For sure. And then removing the cringe. Yeah. <laughs> like looking back and go, oh my gosh, I was so cringy. Oh, but you know what? We all were. So did you, did you ever audition for truth? I did one time. And what happened? 
Um, <clears throat> so this was, I was trying to think of who all was in it. This would have been like the Lee Capolino, uh, Rick Kittleman. Oh, Jody so 91, McGrayer. 92. Yeah. Yes. So I had, um, I had a, a friend who had a, who had a friend in the group and he was like, they're looking for a guy you want, uh, so-and-so wants, would you come and sing? So I went and showed up at some church in Nashville. I can't remember what it was like some, Naz- it was a Nazarene church and I didn't have, I mean, it just caught me off guard because I'm a baritone. Like I knew, I knew it was slim to none that I was going to make it. Like, especially at that age, I was capping out at like an E flat E like I trained as a bass oh, high wow. school singer in college. And my voice was super thick back then. There was just, it wasn't going to happen. So I went and sang some song and visited with Alicia afterwards. Mm-hmm. She was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to give this to Roger and Travis has super smooth, beautiful, all caps, baritone, underline <laughs> voice, blah, 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 blah. Like there was no floating for me. Like I had no head voice, but it, it would have been. Impossible. And you had to have that, especially in the early nineties. Oh, you yeah. could probably have gotten away with it a little more if you were back in the mid eighties, probably yes, for sure. But yeah, the the early to mid nineties comes along, and everybody's just at the top of their ranges. Like, oh yeah, just screaming. Oh, and I was so I, I was so I was I jumped headlong into classical music in college. So because I kind of thought I I might kind of go that direction. Um, so I was like warming up this fat classical you know sound every day like i wouldn't even speak without warming up my voice back in those days so there was no fitting my i mean i had no elasticity to my voice back then like i learned all that in the studio like mm. being a studio singer yeah and just like on the spot having to do it and i and my voice has continued to kind of do that like I just re-released, you know, we talked about, I just re-released a record and listening back to the, the leads that I did on that record 17 years ago when I was like 35. I mean, you would think that my voice would be kind of like, is be what it was going to be then. Uh And it it still has, I wanted to re-record every lead. I was like, oh gosh, was I singing like that? We were putting that on tape, but yeah. Well, you don't know until you look back. I listened to, I go back and listen to the true stuff and even the early, the, the, maybe the two first for him records. And I go, Oh, I just, I can't stand my voice back then. It was just, it was still so raw and was trying to figure things out. I don't feel like I really started to like my own voice until maybe like the fourth record, like maybe uh, the for him. Uh, for him. Yeah. Like the, the, maybe the ride record. I was like, okay, there it is. That's what I like about my voice, but yeah. it is a journey, but, yeah, something got us to where we were. At but that those point. who are fans, I mean, the essence of your voice has been there from the beginning. Like, and again, I I've always been ear blind to it. I just felt like I don't get it. I don't. I I do now looking back and go, okay, mm-hmm. well, that was pretty good. But again, you know, even yeah. to hear myself talk and I listen to the podcast back and I go, eh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think we're all like that. I, I think we're all just yeah, we're, we're yeah. all dissatisfied with what we hear. You know, coming out of our mouth. Yeah. So let's talk about your journey. So I want to know about your your journey to Nashville and into your Christian music career. So I was, you know, and I grew up in Boone, North Carolina, the mountains of Boone, and I 
loved music from the beginning of my life. It was the only thing I could ever do, and I could do it pretty well. I remember walking into Ridgecrest. Yeah. You, you oh, know, we played there a lot. Yeah, A lot. I went there uh, for a winter youth celebration my freshman year in high school. No, this would be my sophomore year in high school. And there was a guy on the stage leading worship. And, and at that point, you have to realize, like in 1985, 86, leading worship wasn't a thing. No. Really, especially in the Southern Baptist Church. Like you had a choir director. You had a minister of music. It was just a whole different thing. Yeah. And he was leading us in these songs that like just like changed me. Like I, I was like, what is happening in this moment? I, I just watched him. I was like, and I was watching all these students, and I was like, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. It didn't feel like a concert. It didn't feel like an artist. He, he was doing something different. And um, so I went up to him, and I, was, I didn't even ask his name. I don't even remember who, who he was. And I said, where did you go to school? Where did you go to college? Belmont College. It was Belmont College then, not Belmont University. Got it. I'm going to Belmont College. Huh. Just like that. Just like that. And so in that same time frame, frame, I was such a, I was a church music nerd. Like I, I was so nerdy. I would listen. We would get all of our, our youth choir musicals on cassette and I would listen to them in my just like daily life. Like who does that? It's the weirdest thing. (laughs) Like what 16 year old is listening to Stephen V. Taylor choral demos for joy. <laughs> yeah. But I was, and I loved it. And I kept thinking, who, who are these people They're This is their job. They're sing- they're recording this. I want to do that. And so I just like these little pieces were coming together. And so I went two years to Appalachian state, North Carolina. That's where I fell in love with classical music. But then the whole time I thought, well, I'm ending up at Belmont. I don't know how, and I don't know when, but I am. And so after two years, I transferred to Belmont and then never left Nashville. And who did you meet when you were here? I mean, you had to have, I mean, it's important to find community pretty quickly, especially in Nashville where you gotta, you gotta have friends in a community to kind of survive and, and get kind of inside, get in those lanes that will take you to opportunities. Right. You know, the key for me at that age, like I just jumped so hard into life at our church, which back then it was two rivers Baptist church. Oh yeah. It was, I mean, it was gigantic back in the day. I had never seen church music like this. I'd never seen musicians like this, a, a Sunday experience like this. I just, I couldn't believe it was real. And just jumped in, started working there. And um, I mean, when you say working there, what were you doing? Well, I was, the first thing I did was I played for the sixth grade choir. Kathy Hill, I don't know if you've ever if ever heard that name. I don't know. She was is a legendary children's choir music writer, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And she went to church there. And uh, I, I I directed my children's choir back home. So she was like a superstar to me. Like it would yeah. have been like meeting Andy Christman at your church for me. Just like <laughs> because to me, I couldn't I would have known the difference between meeting Carmen or Kathy Hill. Wow. They both were impactful to me. So I started playing for her, for her youth choir, I mean, for her children's choir. And then I jumped in and sang in ensembles and sang in the choir and eventually started playing. They lost their worship leader. And then at 23, my, the pastor there asked me to fill in as the interim when they lost their worship leader. So this 23 year old, a choir of 150 people, a full orchestra and 4,000 people a Sunday. And I had no idea what I was doing. Wow. 
What a massive opportunity. It was massive. And that was for three months. And then we got a guy who uh-huh. eventually became my life mentor. His name is Dick Hill, um, who's only stayed a year. So he, after a year, he went back to Texas to champion Forest Baptist, yeah. where he finished his, his worship leading career. And then when he left, they asked me to, to do the interim again. And so I did it again for another year. And they said, would you, um, would you take this job? And I was like, no. And I, <laughs> Wait. Right. That's not what I thought you were going to say. I know. It was the weirdest <laughs> thing because what God did in that process was he really kind of, that's where I, I felt the, the change of just like being a singer to being someone who takes people on a journey in worship. Yeah. It happened in that time frame. Oh, wow. And through that experience. And so it was weird to like be affirmed in my spirit by God as a worship leader and then to be offered a worship leading position and then for him to say, but I don't want you to take this one. So you really felt like, like that was God saying, putting his hands up, going, no, don't do this. Right. A hundred, one hundred percent. And I didn't know why, but at the same time I was getting opportunities because there were so many industry people in that church. And I started getting calls for sessions and starting getting calls to lead worship at, had all manner of things. And then eventually a relationship that happened through all of that was that I got paired with Beth Moore, like two years after that, that whole thing. And so that's kind of what God, I think, was setting us aside for. Wow. So how long have you been with Beth? 25 years. That's incredible. Yeah. 25 years. And it's just as fun as it ever was. I don't even know. I, I it, you know, Our crowds aren't what they were. Like, you know, we, we had a we had a 20 year run of arenas, which was crazy. Like we never even realized what was happening, what we were doing. Cause it never felt any different than just like, Oh, we're leading worship. Like we are at church. We just kind of treated it the same way, but now it's different post COVID post her relationship with a big, a huge company with all the, the marketing, uh, you know, interworkings and things. But, I love it just as much, or even more, honestly. How many uh, how many events do you guys do a year? Together? We do like ten a year. Yeah, so it, it it keeps you on the road. Do you do much on the road beyond that, or I do as much as I can fit and be sane, because you know I'm full time at my church as well. Yeah. Well, when I when we really started talking a lot, you were in Jackson. That's right. So, what church were you at in Jackson? I was at Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson for okay. a decade. Okay. So at the end of that, like in 2008, 2009, I threw a, just a crazy set of circumstances. And I look back and see the spiritual scene more clearly that God was pulling us out of Nashville and out into the kind of the country for our kids. And we got, we got a half a decade with their granddad, my, my wife's stepdad and, and her mom, they lived there and we had an amazing time on their farm and horses and all that stuff. And he passed away tragically, like, Mm. and suddenly halfway through that. So, but I just kind of see the Lord pulled us there for that family time, which was really crucial and good for us. Yeah. And then how long have you been back in Nashville? And you're, you're, you're at Belmont at Brentwood Baptist. Oh, Brentwood Baptist. Yes. Sorry. Brentwood Baptist. Been here three years. Love it. We feel so at home. Love the assignment, you know, spiritual assignment. It feels Feels great. Yeah. So you really made your mark in in choral music, right? In writing writing uh, choral charts and and musicals, and that's that's a big industry <clears throat> that most Christian music listeners probably don't 
probably don't understand uh, that there is a there's a pretty big set of gears underneath the Christian music industry that is choral music, right? And you've been a big part of that for a long time. I have, and it's um, you know <clears throat> you said that a lot of people don't understand. I don't really understand it either. <laughs> it's and it's it's a it's a it's a part of the music industry that has undergone a lot of turmoil in the past three years. I mean, why? Three, three of the major companies closed their doors during COVID. Oh, wow. It's like, you know, well, for a lot, a lot of reasons, but right in the middle of COVID, if you go an entire year and you don't sell anything and you're a business, you're going to go out of business. And they went an entire year without selling any choral music because choirs weren't singing. And then when they came back, they were half the number of people. You know, there was just, it was, it was... It was triage. Like it was so traumatic for those churches. And that made it traumatic for word music closed, Brentwood Benson closed, Lifeway closed. Man, those are huge names. Right. right. Well, Brentwood Benson just relaunched again. And they did relaunch. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that, and my, about 90% of my catalog beginning from 1999 till present day was Brentwood Benson. So like in one fell swoop, in one day, all of my catalog closed down Wow, and was completely unavailable. So that was interesting. Well, that had to be a really interesting season for you because not only does it because of COVID that shuts down, but then going out with Beth Moore, all those, all those things shut down as well. Right. What did you do during that time? Well, um, and church is closing its doors. Right. As well as you're not meeting as a church. Well, the thing about it is right in the heart of it is when I was moving. So like just a few months before COVID happened is when I started having conversations with Brentwood. And then right in the middle of those conversations, they're getting really heated and close. And then all of a sudden, March 2020 happens. And so when I actually, my first Sunday at Brentwood was like the first Sunday in July of 2020. Everybody was six feet apart. Yeah. Everybody on stage was six feet apart. Yeah. All that crazy stuff. And I was trying to have choir rehearsal. We had a choir. You know, I was trying to go, you know, this choir's not going away under my watch. I'm a choir guy. You know, like, we're going to make this happen. And trying to carry, like, I always say that choir rehearsal for an hour and a half, it feels like, has to feel like what stand-up feels like. Because you have to keep this room <laughs> booing up yeah. for a solid hour and a half. Yeah. It's crazy. And so... That was really hard when they were all six feet apart and six, uh, away from me. It was huh. crazy. But that's what, I mean, I basically jumped in relationally as much as I could during that time where there was no print, there was no recording, and there was no travel. Just like, let's get to know this community and yeah. make them feel like home. That's a good attitude because most, most everybody I talked to, including myself, are like, oh, what do I do now? Or I know for me... I I went through a major career change of my own doing in February of 2020 and had clients lined up for the entire year that literally just all went away. I had phone call after phone call after phone call of just, hey, we were going to have you in, in two months. Hey, we're going to have you in, in two weeks. Hey, we're going to have you in, in July. We're going to have to push pause on that because we don't know right. what's going to happen in our world, you know, <clears throat> you know uh, in the coming months. Man, you just go, well, okay, God, so what What do we do now? Those of us that sing for a living, that travel for a living, that, you know, we're about being with people for a living. 
what do we do now? And, um, you know, you look back now and just go, yeah, we figured, most of us figured it out. Like, right. And God was gracious in so many different ways to shift what we were doing. Or I know for me, it was, you know, all of a sudden churches, there are all these churches who have a great in-person experience, but they have a terrible online experience. And now everything's online. And right. so I've got churches now calling for help going, can you come here? Can you come here? And I'm like, well, what are your COVID restrictions? And, right. you know, do I, you know, what, what is this all going to take? But they're like, well, whatever we got to do, we get you here because we need to figure out what to do online right. and make it as good as what people, you know, are seeing in person. So, That's right. yeah, there are a lot of things that definitely opened up, but yeah. um, wasn't it a great lesson though? I mean, there are lots of lessons that we had to learn, but the lesson that God didn't need our voice for the gospel to keep going. That's right. That God, God didn't need us to be in our most comfortable giftings or the thing that we had been doing for 20 years, 30 years. He did not need that. Mm. And, but, and we had no choice but to not use those things as a crutch, to stay living, active, highly effective disciples of Christ. Like, you could kind of feel God hit the reset button yeah. on the church. And then when the power button goes back on, everybody that has built it the right way comes back to life. And the, you know, the leaders in the churches that were built on, you know, things that weren't going to survive something like the pandemic, they just didn't come back. Right. You know, I know lots of churches that they still haven't, gotten back to their pre-COVID numbers. Right. And they probably won't. You know, and it was time for some things to die that needed to mm-hmm. die so mm-hmm. that they could live. Yep. I mean. Yeah. Well, I know during that time, you came on my radio show a couple of times, which I'm yeah. grateful for. You always come on, you know, once a year or whenever you have new stuff or I'm just like, I just need Travis to come on the show. And <laughs> you're, you're, it's always fun. And uh, one of my favorite things is, <clears throat> just about every Saturday getting a text from you about, uh, cause we both listened to Sirius XM 80s, 80s which on eight. Yep. That um, countdown, baby. I know one thing we have in common is we believe the greatest era of music of all time in pop Christian, whatever country, whatever was 1977 to 1986. Yes, You may push a year or two. No, that's pretty much eighty. There's the, the decline in the back half of the eighties is yeah. pretty severe. Yeah, but eighty six is my number two year of the decade. Actually, eighty four number one. Eighty four is number one. Yeah, eighty six is number two. Yeah, and who who do you who who's your go to from those eras? Like what uh, Phil Collins. Yeah, Genesis. Uh, did you go see? Did you get to go see? No. I I got to go. I oh, is that when you went to uh, went to Chicago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I took my son. In fact, it was on our bucket list, and <clears throat> it's one of those bands where you know he and I made this list of bands. If these bands ever come, if they ever, if they ever get back together again and do one last tour, we're going to go see him. And sure enough, when Chicago, I got in that kind of lottery of you know trying to get tickets for that, and we we found tickets in Chicago uh, at United Center and flew up there and saw them. And, oh my god! Oh, what a who, what a night! Who did you who did you last see in Vegas? Uh, uh, well, we saw Wayne Newton. In oh, Las yeah, Vegas, we did talk about which that. is really cool. And you were the, so impressed. Oh, he's awesome. He's like yeah, eighty yeah. years old or more, and you know he didn't sing all night, but his showmanship and just his personality and 
very patriotic and just very positive. It was really cool. Even talked about faith quite a bit. And I don't know if he's had a uh, an experience with the Lord, but it, it really seemed like he was in a pretty good place when he was kind of talking about his faith and stuff. But yeah, um, yeah, we love to go to Las Vegas and see shows there. There's so many great yeah. artists that are there. And um, who have you seen lately? Like what? Well, my daughter and I saw Taylor Swift. <laughs> That's not the eighties. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I don't. I don't even think there is anybody I've seen live in forever. Um. You need to. Yeah, I need to. It's it's good for us as musicians, I think. I, you know, I think about some of the artists I've seen in the last 10 years or so. Uh, Fleetwood Mac was amazing. This was before they kind of, that uh, Lindsay, was before Lindsay, was before, uh, now Christine McVie wasn't there. I mean, Christine. Yeah. But Lindsay, it's before Lindsay Buckingham left. Right. And I just, I realized at that moment, he might be my favorite guitar player of all time. Of all time. Like, I was just blown away. One of my favorite concerts. I've ever been to. And of course, Stevie Nicks just, she kills she every time kills. she's on stage. She still does. Yeah. I was, you know, I think an unsung hero of the 80s because he's so overexposed now, but we can't forget how great he was is Lionel Richie. Oh, yeah. Oh, I want to go see him at some point. I would go see him. He's got a residency in Vegas now. Oh, he does. Yeah. Need to make a trip out there and see yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah, you forget when you, until you go down, and you, not just with him, but with the Commodores. The, I know, going all the way back oh, to the Commodores. Oh, man. Yeah. Just every song just incredible incredible well okay so let's talk about christian concerts what 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 are your favorite christian concert moments so this gets embarrassing because (laughs) i haven't seen a lot of christian concerts in my like later adult years well well let's go back though i haven't either i don't know because when you're in it Um, you're doing it yeah you don't really get to see a lot but yeah and I, i mean i've seen i've gone to see stephen curtis chapman a couple of times when he's yes. come through Tulsa and, and, um, uh, I, man, that's, that's about it. I go see winter jam, you know, just yeah. usually because Russ Lee will text me and right, go, right, Hey, right. come hang out with us. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and I'll go just kind of hang out on the side stage with the monitor engineer. And we, and we go see Amy and Vince at Christmas time at the yeah. Roman, you know, they're there every year and it's so good. It's yeah. so warm and yeah, it's fun. Um, gosh, you're stumping me. I, I, I think about to my early years when I f- I'm, I'm not just saying this, but I'll never forget coming to see truth. I think I've, sh- I think I've shared this exact memory recently with you on the phone at, it was in a gym or a, something, a gym of a church in Raleigh, North Carolina and keep believing was brand new. Oh, wow. And y'all marched into that thing. And that was the first time I ever heard Christy Bovee. Oh, I love Christy. And she, y'all, Y'all marched in there, single file, and sang This Is The Hour. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm rededicating my life <laughs> right now. It's happening right now, God. This is the hour. I loved it so much. I'll never forget that night. Yep. Y'all sang some old stuff, but you sang a lot from that record that night. Yeah, well, because it was new, and that was a great record. I mean, that was the that was the coming out party for for him because – That's um, right. Um, you did uh, wear his faith. Before. Well, before was on that record. Before. Yeah. And then Cindy, Cindy Schnelling and I had a song. How will they know? How will they know? Look at you. You're ahead of me. Right. Don't tell me things <clears throat> I already know. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think, and Mark had a big song on that record. Well, he had Keep Believing. Right. But it seems like there was had, another duet, though. Um, maybe. I don't remember. You're going to remember more than I will, but. Gosh, I should have refreshed. Oh, I'm mad at myself. Yeah. He does have another. Oh. 
There was a Brent Lamb song. Yeah, yeah. In you're not care. There is comfort. Was I don't remember. Care. Yeah. Mr. Producer over here is not going to find it because it's not on Spotify. I'm going to find it because so, I have it in Dropbox from um, somebody who yeah. gave me a Dropbox treat one time. Oh, was that me? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, I do remember baby. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Here it is. I'm going to figure out what this... Uh, this um... That was a really good record. I remember... So I have a little story about oh, that in record. In his care. That was a song. Oh, okay. And uh, the other song, um, <sighs> Sunday. Wasn't that a Mark, big Mark Harris? Maybe. I don't remember. Okay, but I got to tell you this story. This is, this, is a, this is a really cool story mm-hmm. about just kind of my uh, evolution as yeah. a soloist. So I got to sing. So my first, my first... The first song I got to sing a lead on in the studio was, I believe, on what was this? What was the album after Making It Matter? Um, um, now and Forever. Oh, uh, Still the Truth. Still the Truth. No. It is well. No. Was that on Still the Truth? That wasn't Still the Truth. That was Making It Matter, I think. Yeah. I don't know. It's wherever we were jumping on the the pictures of us jumping. That was Making It Matter. Yeah, because we were jumping on the cover. Higher Ground. You'll still be like, uh-huh. It is well was on uh, Making It Matter. Okay. So. That was my first. That was my first solo part. I only did the like the last. Yeah, Mark would always be so mad at me. Listen, listen. I'm the baritone. Like he did all that heavy lifting. <laughs> he talks about it. He all got the time. us all the way. He took us all the way through Bethlehem and Gethsemane. <laughs> got us to Calvary, and then there you go and take all the glory with the it's empty true. tomb right there. It's true. The- I'm like, hey, not my fault. <laughs> I just did what Stevie asked me to do. And, and it was, that was, yeah. So that was my first, that was my first time to get in the studio and actually have a little lead line. And Stephen V, was he producing? Stephen V, oh, he produced all of our stuff during those time, during those days. Yes. And, um, anyway, so then I had some, some song, Holy of Holies, you know, on the next record. And then. How will um, they know? How will they before? know? Yep. Well, so before was just the four guys. And I was. I had been tapped to lead that song in the studio. So we recorded that most of that record in Seattle. Why? I don't remember. I don't remember the backstory of it, but we re- we stayed in Seattle for like two weeks and recorded that record. And I remember I went in at like seven o'clock at night and I'd been rehearsing the song <clears throat> and I got into the studio and started singing it for Stevie and it just wasn't working. It was for like, before? it was, well, it was, yeah, it was like, it was cut too low I was having, I was struggling to really get any passion into it and getting energy into it. And that verse was low. Yeah. I praise God for the wonderful change in my life. See, I couldn't even sing that. It's incredible. I don't know if that's the right words, but. Oh, uh, I think you're right. Um, so anyway, uh, Stevie gets on the comm and goes, yeah, this is not working. I don't, I just, well, I think we cut this too low for you. I think I'm just going to call Mark and have him come in. And I lost my mind. Like I, that was the first time I can remember, like as an artist going, no, I'm doing this. Right. I would, you felt I, challenged. Like. I felt challenged. Well, I was like, you know what? This has happened to me before. I've come mm-hmm. in to sing a song and they're like, eh, we're just going to give it to Mark. And I'm like, right. no, no, let me do this. <laughs> this is my, and I knew, I kind of knew this was my last shot to sing a song with truth. Uh, even though I had the song with Cindy. Uh, on on the on that same record, 
But I said, Stevie, just give me one more chance. Let me let me just try something. And he's like, okay, I'll give you a couple more run-throughs. And I just started ad-libbing. Like, I ad-libbed, it wasn't after I was worthy that he saved me. And I took the melody up. Yes. Because originally it was like, it wasn't after I had that he saved me. Yeah. And I just kind of went for it. As a reward. Yeah. And so, uh, I remember he came on the comm afterwards. He was, yeah, I think I can work with that. Let's just let's just work a little longer on it tonight. And it became a single. And that was like, you know, now we had the Christmas song. Right. Um, um, what was that? Um, uh, little baby in a manger low. Yep, yep, yep. Born out in a stable where there was. I'm going to get to the hook in a minute. Place to go. And a shepherd, you know, stranger, he's a king. Out the day before him, they slowly began to sing. Uh, Caroler song. Caroler song. This is a song, the Caroler song. Uh, yeah, Caroler song. So that had come out on the Christmas record earlier. Yeah, Your Heart is Where Christmas is Found. Yeah, great Christmas record. If you need a new Christmas record for your collection, yes, that one is still an incredible. Is that gettable? Because I have it on my little special I don't know. Dropbox I doubt tree. it. You can find it somewhere. Somebody's going to have it. You know what it. other song? Wait, is it that same record? Straight? No. The Way He Came. The Way He Isn't it amazing? The way that's he that's came. like a top ten yeah. all time of Christmas songs ever. Yeah, just to think such royalty would come the way he came. You know, those to me some of the, those are some of the best songs written in Christian music. Are that is that that dichotomy of this great and mighty God, right? Created the universe and this little baby, and, and that takes you in a strange way to save the world too, which is go. another all timer. Oh yeah, which is y'all. Yeah. Yeah, so be, stay tuned to the 4M podcast because you're going to hear a lot about that song okay, good. when that one comes out. Anyway, that song became a hit on before. Christian radio before it did, yeah, and uh, which didn't happen a lot with, with Roger right? and Truth. They only had one or two before that, number one. So I guess You'll Still Be Lord of All, I think, was number one, which is, is Mark. Able. Again, no, he's able, oh, wasn't. It wasn't? It was, um, it was Jesus Never Fails. Yeah. And you'll still be Lord of all. Okay. Take and I, I don't know that any song on Keep Believing went number one, but it did establish that for him sound. Yeah. And it was just the four of us on that song. And I remember that was right around the time that Benson started talking to us about you guys maybe becoming a group mm-hmm. and we'll kind of, we'll just kind of walk you across the hall. Have you sign a similar contract to what Truth has? And we'll just see what we have. And, you know, we, we had, you realize we had a thousand concerts in truth, the four of us, before we ever did a show as for him. And so we just had this built in rapport and sound right. and ease Talk with about us. A built in fan base, too, yeah. like people who loved you. Well, well, we went everywhere. We were able to, uh, Truth, the guy that booked Truth, mm-hmm. um, uh, he was became our booking agent for the first couple of years. So we knew everywhere that we went the year before is Truth. We would say, hey, we're coming back as another band. And, of course, where there's faith comes out, and every one of those churches would have us. So we, I think we did 250, 280 shows that first year when we were away from truth. Insane. But Are you thankful that I have stopped sending you a video every time I walk by gate before the National Airport going, Yes. It was <laughs> No. <laughs> no. Please continue to do it because it makes me laugh it every time. It was before. Look, it's before. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, I have more questions for you. Let's turn this around. Oh, anyway, no? okay. Let me interview. So let's talk about, did you ever have a vocal? Because you're you have, the Lord gave you this unique tenor voice. It's not just, it wasn't unique because you could sing high. It was just unique in sound. And it feels like everything's easy. Even though you know exactly how to pull tension in your sound. And it's like, I know you have those notes, but you're giving it the grit it needs. Like, was there ever a, a vocal that you're like, I can't do this. But then you press through and you ended up like, because everything sounds easy to you. And I don't, but I don't mean like it sounds lazy because it doesn't, but it just sounds like, oh, he can sing anything. So I was a good mimicker when I was growing up. That's how I learned how to sing. And this is funny. Well, Jack and I were driving down here from Tulsa um, and uh, we were listening to uh, uh, the old song, uh, the old Kenny Rogers song, Lady, came on. And I was singing along and I was going, Lady. Like I was doing the same grit. And she this? looked over at me and went, she went, are you, are you singing exactly like him? And I went, right. yeah, I think I am. That's just kind of muscle memory. And that's the way I learned how to sing. I would just, I would literally listen to a song a hundred times and try to sound just like that person and mimic them. And so I think I developed certain muscle memory and certain, like, I, I feel like that I just did that early on. And when, then when I got in, into truth and then had to sing professionally day in and day out, uh, those, all that muscle memory kind of came back and, and, and kind of morphed into that voice that that kind of became my own. Yeah. So what were you going to ask? Oh, I was just going to do a side note about Lady. Yeah. Do you know that's in the, that's in the, I think it's definitely the top 10, possibly the top five songs of the whole decade. Wow. I did not know that. And like four songs in the top 10 for the entire decade were from 1981. Wow. Physical, Lady, uh, Betty Davis Eyes. Yeah. And one other thing. Oh, probably, probably uh, endless, endless love. Endless love. Okay, but seriously, like you have a, you're a, you have to be such a healthy singer because your speaking voice is so. It's even at at your older age, it's buoyant and like clear and high, and it always was. And then, like for you to bring the tension or the angst or the energy or whatever you want to use when you were singing all those songs night in and night out and to never have trouble, like you had to be the healthiest singer on the planet. So I can attribute it to a few things. Number one, I think we may have mentioned this earlier that, that sometimes God just blesses you with a, a strength. Um, and I, I think I probably have that. Like, I feel like I have iron chops, right? I always have. I, I in fact, uh, uh, sound engineers throughout my career would always tell me you're kind of unmixable sometimes because you just blast through the you mix. Just cut right through. You just cut right through, and you have to be careful of that tone. And there, there are certain uh, frequencies that I've had to learn how to cover over the years because they do. They will just be like an ice pick in your brain, and it will it will ruin a sound man's beautiful mix. And so you just kind of have to, you know, over the years you have to figure out what those things are. Um, but I do feel like God just gave me that extra gear. And, but then on the other side, you do have to take care of yourself. You really do. Yeah, you do. And, and I, you know, I said earlier, I, I, I used to mimic people growing up and I, I tell all of my vocal students that I have that, um, I think I guessed right a lot because when, 
I got into truth. I was a powerhouse voice. Like I could just sing through a brick wall. Right. And then do you remember Gordon Twist? Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't know him well, but yeah. Well, so Gordon was was in truth back in the early 70s. And then he went on to be a vocal producer on Broadway. And or he had like a like a the guy that would rehearse all the vocalists before they would get on stage. Right, right. And he would come back, Roger would bring him in three or four times a year and work with us as vocalists. And he was a guy that just kind of pulled that emotion out of you and he would get in your face and scream at you and run laps around the building as you were singing saying i want more give me more (laughs) and if you can picture like this this 60 year old guy that's like four foot nine you know stark white hair and the biggest grin you've ever seen i want more (laughs) and but he he taught me about singing on the breath he'd always talk about singing on the breath and i learned that from him and i'm like you know i kind of do that already uh, and so I just really doubled down on that. And uh, I I was, and still am a very healthy vocalist. I can remember, so I had a had a, a worship pastor friend of mine challenge me one time, how many, how many hours do you think you've sung, like professionally? And I was like, okay, well, I've done like 5,000 concerts. I started adding up, you know, the time spent there. I've done probably 10,000 worship services. And went through all that. And of course, then you add in rehearsals and then studio hours. And I got to like 30,000, 30,000 hours of professional vocal singing. And I can remember one night in my entire career. I'll never forget what it was. It was in Cincinnati. And we were doing, for him, was doing two shows. It was with Clay Cross. And if Clay was there, it was probably Katz or Coley. I love the Clay interview, by the way. I love him so much. Oh, he's the best. Yeah. Um, and I remember I was having sinus issues on that tour, that front leg of that tour, and I decided to take a Sudafed to dry myself out. Mm-hmm. And it totally sucked all the moisture out of my throat and it just felt like two bricks in my throat rubbing up against each other. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get anything out. And I had to do two shows. We had to do a matinee and a and a show. And I was singing. Of course. Did Roger that? No, it was for him, Joe. <laughs> <Just> yeah. <kidding. laughs> But I, I, you know, I had to sing the big songs. I had to sing Where There's Faith, Future Generations, Man You'd Write About, uh, uh, you know, what's the Measure of a Man, The Message. I mean, these were all songs that I'm like, we have to do these in the show. And it was terrible. All the songs where you pull you in on the chorus. Even just just like carrying those choruses. But but it was even just to open my mouth, like, ah. I want to be a man that you could ride. I mean, that's how bad it was. And I, I swore off antihistamines the rest of my life. I will never take another one. Wow. I don't care how bad I feel. It's not worth that drying out. So there are just some things that I just picked up over the years, uh, good sleep patterns, uh, certain foods and, and, and liquids that I would stay away from, uh, just really getting into a rhythm of how I, um, how I prepared myself. Can I just tell you what the, I feel like the number one thing for me is I just go for it. I've always had yes. this little, this little voice in the back of my head say, what if there's no tomorrow? Right. What if this is the last time you ever get to sing? What if Jesus comes back right. in the middle of that song? And this was the, la- this was it. And that was it. What did you do? Did you give it all? And somebody somewhere in my life, I don't know who it was, I would love to thank them for this, but somebody told me, don't save it for the next show. 
Just go ahead. Because you don't know if there's you don't know if you're gonna get to the next show. Just go ahead. These people right. deserve what you're right. what you're gonna have. And I, I love that. And and so, but then it was just like I would sing past the pain and I would sing past the uncomfortableness and I would find this extra gear. And you know, I, that's just that's that's what I can attribute it to. I love that. I went to I w- there was a season where I was having vocal trouble and I went to um the Vanderbilt Vanderbilt Voice Center. Uh-huh. It was that hard to say. Vanderbilt Voice Center. I loved it. I loved them so much. It turns out that my issues were physical in nature. Like they found I had a leg that was like half an inch shorter than the other. And all my muscles were doing this like, and, and to where these muscles just finally get That's out. wild. It was wild. Yeah. I've got a lift in my leg. Like I'm 80 years old. I mean, in my <laughs> shoe right now, because that sets everything back. But anyway, um, the guy in there, you know, I, I'm a heavy singer. And so I, I carry the weight. I, I, I know when I'm singing smart, like if I sing classical, I could, I could, I could drop a two hour uh, opera right now and not feel it tomorrow as much as I feel this morning's two services. Wow. It's just weird. And I know when I'm not being smart, but what the guy said something to me that, um, that really helped me. And he's like, just sing however you want to sing. Just know it may cost you tomorrow. Just make sure you're, you've got, you can afford it. Like, can you pay that tomorrow? Then fine. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes along with what you're saying. It's like, yeah. Give what you give as much as you can give right now, and then, and then tomorrow will come, and you'll see. But you know what? The Lord always gives. I'm like you. I'm just like, go for it. Yeah, you kind of have to go. You, you have to. You have to pay attention to the natural, right. like you do. Like God, do. God, God created us, and so we know we have limitations. But then, you, if you add the spiritual to that, just to go, okay, God. So, but you have me somewhere tomorrow night, and you're bringing people that need to hear this message. And we know how music delivers that message, delivers it on a deeper level. And I, I always felt a responsibility to just let it all go. Just don't save anything. Right. Just go. And so how did you feel? Here's another question for one degree of Travis here with Andy <laughs> Christman. Um, what was it like emotionally to sing Holy of Holies at the big reunion last year? Oh, my gosh. So a couple of, couple of things I remember about that was... Oh no, I haven't sung this song since like 1990 and I don't know if I can do it. And I worked my tail off. Like you practice. I practice. So I do a lot of vocal coaching and thankfully I do the exercises along with my students. Right. So I do keep my voice in very decent shape. Even though I'm not singing as much as I used to, I keep my voice in, in really good shape. But to be able to sing Holy of Holies, I mean, that is like, that's a gut buster. I mean, that's a, it, it, it just yeah. stays up there over and over and over again. And it's the payoff. I mean, you have to nail those notes to pay off that song. Right. So you either you either sprint through the finish line or you fall over, you know, right. 10 yards from the right. tape, right? There's no in between. You don't limp to the to the end of that song. So I I did my I did my work. I put my work in and I and an attitude thing of I'm not going to talk much right. today. I'm not going to. I'm going to. I'm going to conserve try, energy. Conserve. Right. I'm going to try and get really calm. Uh, you know, because I know all that stuff adds up, and I know I only have to sing one song. Right. right? I'm going to sing a couple of songs with that group that 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 I was a part of. In truth, 
Um, and so I go to rehearsal and I nailed it. I was like, yes. And then I'm thinking, oh, we got to do it one more time. Right. And I probably have two more of these. Again, you talk about spending the cash. Right, right, you have right, so right, much right. cash you can yeah, spend. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I think I only have two more of those notes. And uh, after we did it one more time, I didn't quite go for it the last time. So I'm like, I know where this feels. I know what I have to do. It's muscle memory. I right. just have to. And then you have to, you have to prepare yourself, like stay in the moment. Don't get too excited. Don't it's measuring your out everything. It You're is just like constantly measuring, right? And there's people in the room when people start standing their feet, you right. know, and lifting their hands and singing along with you. You want to like kick that extra gear up, right? And, you, and you're saving it because you're like, yeah. well, because when this song's over, I, I don't need any of this, right? And we'll give it all, right? Right. But you have to not give it all before those last couple of right. nights, right? So I'm walking off stage after rehearsal, and one of the band members runs up to me and says, "Hey, um." You know, we've never performed that song in this key before. I'm like, what are you talking about? I've sung this song 500 times, in truth. And they said, no, uh, we always did this song a half step lower than what you recorded it in. I'm like, get out of town. Did I just hit those notes a half step higher than when I was 24 years old? What are you talking about? Yeah. And then I tried not to get in my head to go, oh, no. Can I do this in front of a live audience? And again, it's another whole, the rest of the day, just kind of psych myself in that oh, right place. that would place. mess with me. That would mess with me. Yeah, oh, yeah. And I was just got, I can't let it, I can't let it mess with me. I can't, you know, but it was a very beautiful moment. When we hit, when we hit that song and it got cranked up, yeah. you could just feel the emotion in the room. Right. And just men that have been mentors to me, I think of Michael Catt, who just passed right, away, Right, right. who was just one of my greatest mentors and uh, just him coming to his feet and the tears streaming right. when we hit that first chorus. And even, even Roger, looking over at Roger and he stands up and helps Linda up to her feet. Right. And, yeah. and then you're like, all right, it's on. I got to do this. Right. And you just kick that next gear. And that's, that's one of my favorite moments of the last several decades. Yeah. I've been able to sing that song with my friends. Up there on stage with Mark, Marty. No, Marty wasn't able to be there. Yeah, Marty. Uh, but it was Mark and Kirk, Lisa. Lisa. Um, uh, gosh. Um, Gina. Gina was there. Gina Walker. And um, uh, Alicia. Alicia, of course. And it was Christy up there for that? Christy, yeah. Yeah, she was there as well. What a group, man. And, of course, we had Dana Capolino back there playing right. guitar and... Oh, it was just a wonderful moment. I was living so vicariously through. Were you watching online? I couldn't watch online because we had an event. And but I, you went back afterwards. I went back that? afterwards. I was I was driving people crazy that were there texting. I was texting Lee and Dana the whole time. Yeah. I was texting Lisa, Alexis Cruz, who was there. Yeah. And you know they were giving me play by plays. Yeah. And then I was just online. People were posting stuff. I I remember. Um, Russ Lee was just putting like full performances on his Instagram and I was just going and watching. Yeah. It was really a beautiful night. I'm so glad we got to be a part of that. And you know what really, really was. So let's go back to the vocal technique, the singing on the breath thing. Mm-hmm. That was a, that was the true standard uh, style of singing. It's it kind of changed as we got into the nineties, but um, that was the way everybody sang back then. Right. And so that early eighties group, that sang before, um, you know, um, uh, Kim Noblet and 
And those guys, when they sang, they sounded great. Like these guys are seven, eight, nine, ten years older than I am. And the way they sang and the notes they hit and the the stamina that they had when they sang, I'm like, that system works, man. It really I don't does. know why it's not taught anymore, but that system works and you can sing with that type of energy and excellence into your old age. And it made me excited to continue to be a singer into my sixties and seventies. I'm I'm actually kind of looking forward to what my voice is going to sound like yeah. even in 20 years from now. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I think about like the sound of that opener of all that is, all, all that, is, that is in me. Yeah. And I remember listening to that over and over going, I think Andy's singing in middle here. Oh, see, this is what freaks me out about you is how you still remember all the parts. Yes. Like I, I am, I am the strangest of people. Yeah. And I'm just like, I don't remember that. I, I could not. If you were to put that on right now, I wouldn't be able to sing my part. And you would be, oh, yeah, you sang. And you'd like get on the piano and go, you sang this line right here. Oh, that is in me. <laughs> no way. Singing the mill. Yes. <laughs> With probably Alicia. Oh. I, would, I would think, yeah, I'm hearing his tone right there just a little bit. But maybe he sang a pass at the bottom because I hear him a little bit there. I just was messed up, man. You are messed up. And same thing on, I love, I, you know what is an unsung, no pun intended, uh, uh, truth song that was so great was Higher Ground. Oh, yeah. So, you know, uh, Dave Clark and Don Cook wrote that. Yes, I do. And so that was, Dave Dave mm-hmm. and Don said, uh, were on the podcast and they talked about how they came to hear truth. And we were in that group and they heard Higher Ground They that that we had cut that song. And... You know, they're just kind of like, hey, take a listen to those guys up there. That's, uh, and that's who they would be working with in the future. You know, Dave uh, published the first song I ever wrote and got it cut. Which, what, what was the name of it? It was called It's Only Thunder, and it, Larnell cut it. Oh, wow. How did, what did that feel like, getting your first cut by somebody like Larnell? Oh, I, 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 I couldn't even breathe. Like, I, I wasn't even a, really a songwriter. My friend David Moffat, who's an mm-hmm. amazing songwriter. Yeah. He had a relationship with Dave. Dave Dave Moffat, David Moffat went to Estes, won the whole competition, the songwriting competition one year. Dave signed him, hired him to be a plugger and work in his in his deal. First first music. And David wrote this song called It's Only Thunder. And it was like a country song. Child, it's only thunder. There's no need to be afraid. And he was like, Dave sent it back and said, Write this for Larnell. Give this a little salt. David Moffat comes to me and goes, can, can you write a tune to this? I'm like, sure. I mean, why not? I know chords. Yeah. So that's, that's Even if you couldn't, you go, yeah, I'll yeah, do it. I can write it. Quick. So we, we just wrote this gospel. Child is only. I look back and go, I was, I was such an idiot. I didn't know what I was doing. We recorded it in his bathroom, <laughs> like for the. Reverb, yeah. oh, we get, we hand it into Dave. He gets it cut on Lionel Harrison. I thought, is this how this works? Like, is this real? I couldn't even, I couldn't even believe it. It kind of and is how it works. It, at least it kind of is they did, works. yeah. But then we joke that we're the ones that that took uh, Larnell down because that was like <laughs> the first record that didn't go oh, no. like yeah. platinum gold. Yeah. But you know, things were changing then, like 1994, and mm-hmm. the sound was changing, and Benson was whatever, you know, yeah. and. But I mean, that's, you know, that, that's probably my, has to be one of my favorite voices of my life. Wow. Larnell. Now just a, 
Yeah, he's one of a kind. Um, and you know there weren't there weren't a ton of black artists in contemporary Christian music, right? And so to be able to do what he did to appeal to so many different audiences, genre crossing, really. Oh yeah, I did. Do you know? Do you remember that work, Savior? It was uh, it was Greg Nelson and Bob Farrell wrote it. It was like a modern day. It is a modern day oratorio. Okay, published in 1994. It was big choir. The story from creation to to resurrection. Gorgeous choral writing. Ron Huff did all the orchestrations, um, and it had soloists Larnell, Larnell, Steve Green, Wayne Watson. A bass named uh, Wintley Phipps. Yes. And then, oh, what a voice. What a voice. Wow. And then Twyla did the female part. So anyway, we did the 25th anniversary of Savior in 2018 at Carnegie. Wow. I sang one of the solo parts and, and Larnell sang. And when I tell you, like, it might as well have been 1988. Wow. Like, his voice was un. Believable, and he's he's over seventy, right? Man, he's got to be, yeah. I want to out him, yeah. or in case he's listening, I have full respect for you, Mister Harris, <laughs> and whatever age you are. But um, he sang so brilliantly. Like I'm like, how can he do this at this age? Like it was yesterday that he recorded it. Um, unbelievable. Okay, so I have to tell you that makes me think of a Larnell story. It was one of his songs that we did in Truth. Do you remember the song, I Miss My Time With You? Yes. I miss my time with you. Uh, Those moments. Can. Yeah. So Kirk led it. We did it for a short amount of time. We didn't, it was not on a record or anything, but Roger would, well, he, Roger would find a song here or there and be like, we need to do this song. We need to do that yes. song. So he found I Miss My Time With You and gave it to Kirk. And we were, I bust Kirk on this all the time uh, when we talk about it, but then we talk about funny stories from those days. But Kirk was, Kirk's just got that, he's got that big soulful voice yes. that doesn't quite follow the the linear pattern of notes and chords. And right. so he can kind of, you know, he can find himself way over here. We're like, no, Kirk, we're singing over here. You know, and just kind of <laughs> come back with us, come back with us. So there's this moment at the end of the song where it goes, I miss my time. And we stop for drama. Right. With you and da, da, and, and the band finishes. So Kirk, of course, he's just gonna he's gonna do all of his stuff in it, and he he ends up with I miss my time with you. We're like, <laughs> we have to come in with this. He yeah. completely lost his. Oh whole, yeah, dude, uh, it was the tonic. it was a train wreck. Of train wrecks. And, um, okay, I've got another train wreck story. And I, I hate that I didn't uh, share this with the Point of Grace girls. They, they probably are still mad about it. But, um, you know, Michael Hodge? Yes. So Michael was out with us as the guitar player. We shared a band when um, for that for him Point of Grace tour. Michael Hodge was the lead guitar player. Two hearts. And, yes. Yep. Oh, yeah. And he um, uh, they did an acoustic set. And so they're out on stools and they're going through, um, you know, several, several, several of their big songs, right. you know, like you would do in a, in a, in a show, you don't have time right. for all your songs. So you do an acoustic medley and they get to, I think they were ending with like circle of friends and, uh, the, he didn't take the capo off 
and was playing Cir- Circle of Friends in the wrong key. And at the end of Circle of Friends, it it the track comes on. Oh no! <laughs> the track comes on, and there are background, there are extra background vocals on the track. And they're busted in every way, every way. So they're, of course, they're singing live, you know, like yeah. we all were. We, we did the same thing. We had, we had right. sweetener. We call them sweeteners. Right. We had sweeteners on the tracks, oh. that, you know, that, that would Thank help the Lord for them. Yeah, yeah. Make the vocals just a little bit bigger. Um, and then they, they hit, um, circle. And I, I think it was circle of friends and they hit it, man. It sounded like cats fighting. <laughs> Was, they were a half step off from the track. All these, oh yeah, and we were backstage and we heard it, and we, like, well, of course, we started howling and running to the edge of the stage, and are just losing our minds. Like that was incredible, and the girls are so mad. They were mad at Michael for so long. It's like, buddy, it's okay. Here's twenty bucks. You know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Uh, I'll tell you another story. So we did, did you ever, have you ever played, I'm sure you have, have you ever played the, um, I guess it's still there, the chapel at um, Wheaton College Yes. in Chicago. Yes. Big, beautiful wooden, wooden chapel. Yes. We did, there was a show that was on Moody Radio. Was it called Friday, Friday Night Sing or Saturday Night Sing? I don't know that. Something like that, but it was something that was a live broadcast. And they would you would go sing like two hours, it'd be an hour, and then like a 15-minute intermission, and then another hour. And it was completely live on the radio. <clears throat> and we were, I think it was right after Walk On had come out, and we played there and it was packed. It was there were like three thousand people there, and it was just an incredible night. We get close to the end of the first hour. When we're going to take our break and we have, we're playing, we don't have a band with us. We're playing tracks and we have some sweeteners. We have some vocals on the track and Marty and Mark are playing acoustic guitars and we're doing who you are, who you are is all I ever want to be. And Mm, uh, we get to the end of the song and the track fails. And all of a sudden, all the music goes away. All the vocals on track go away. And it's just four voices and guitars going, who you are is all I'll ever want to be. And we just went with it. And the play, we got to the end of it and the place erupted like for a solid two minutes, just this thunderous applause where we were just like, you know, in that moment when something catastrophic fails on stage, right. you're kind of like, oh God, what's going to happen yeah, now? Gonna or happen. this is going to fall. We're on live radio. Right. And this is going to like fall. Like the electricity. Yeah. Turns off or something. Yeah. Exactly. And we got to that moment at the end of that, and it was just like, that might be the coolest moment in that I can remember in for him. Of all the things we've ever done, the track going out in that big resounding wooden cathedral a wooden chapel with all those people on live radio. And I was almost kind of like God going, I'm gonna do something here. That's going to be really cool. You're going to panic for a minute, but trust me, just keep going. And we did. We didn't miss a beat. We just kept going and finished the song. And we walked off stage going, I think that's something I'll always remember. Yeah. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. The whole thing of like, you take away the things that you think you have to have. Yeah. And you realize, oh, God, that was all just incidental. Like the 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 tracks and the this and that. He doesn't need it. 
to accomplish his purposes. Well, you just go do. You know, right. that's another thing that I love to tell young artists is just get out there. Just go. Even if you fall on your face, you'll learn from it. Right. Even if things don't go the way you hope they would, you can still get another gig. You can still go sing somewhere else. Right. Learn from it. And it's those, it's those moments where you've lived through chaos and failure and, and why in the world did I even step out on that stage? It grows you and it becomes this, this platform that you build on and you go, well, if I can survive that, I can survive this. Right. Well, you know what? That wasn't so bad. Or maybe it's a perfect night and you do everything great and the crowd doesn't respond at all. Or you don't get any feedback and you go, well, wait a minute, I was perfect tonight and nobody seemed to care. Right. And you have to you have to just kind of collect all of those all of those reps, all of those, you know, performances, all of those experiences into one big thing. And that's why I think if you can just stay in it long enough. You'll get to a certain point and be able to look back and go, wow, it was all worth it. Right. Every bit of it was worth it. The tough times, the great times, the times when I didn't know if I could go on stage again, even the times where I had two bricks rub- rubbing together in my throat and I couldn't get a note right. out. I still look back at that time and go, man, God was doing something pretty cool. I love the way you said that. Just go and do, just go and do something. I think. I look back on God's faithfulness in my life and I, and I, and I don't say this to pat like a pat on the back, but just like the church needs people to serve. Like people just need to be served. And even in our music, like we're so often treated as artists or put on some kind of platform or, you know, they bring food in our green room and all that kind of stuff. When the bottom line is we're, we're just there to serve, like be open-handed and, it's usually music that we get to serve by, but sometimes it's not. And I think about, I don't think I've ever, you don't have to use this if this sounds pompous, this story, because I don't want it to sound pompous, but it's an interesting story. I don't think I've ever told this story in public before, but I, I won't forget a lesson that God taught me when I was, when I first came to Two Rivers Baptist Church, I was 20 years old. Actually, I'd been there about a year. And, uh, it may even been a little bit longer than that because my wife and I were dating at the time and we were in love with Cindy Morgan's new record. Like she's my, I say that she's like my Oprah, my Bono, yeah. my whatever, my Whitney. Like she's my favorite artist. Would that would have been the loving kind record? No, it would have been, uh, it would have been uh, real life. Her first. Oh one. yeah. Oh man. I had a, how could I ask for more? Yes. Have, oh yeah. Gosh, so good. And let it be love and all those great songs. Anyway, Mark Hammond, her producer, went to our church. He will not remember this. And I've never even replayed this story with him. I was um, playing for Kathy Hill's sixth grade choir. And um, Mark and and um, Cindy was singing at something over either at Opryland Hotel or at the Grand Ole Opry. She was a brand new artist, and it was something pretty important. She was a pianist, so I never even, she and I are great friends now, and I haven't even told her the story, I don't think, but Mark called because her pianist had to back out of something at the very last minute, and he needed somebody to play for her to sing one song at the Opry. It was on a Wednesday night, and I had sixth grade choir practice, and I felt like the Lord said, honor your commitment. And so I said no to that. And I don't, 
I don't know what was happening in the heavenly realm. I, I don't, I, I certainly am not going to be some like martyr. Like I always made the right decision because I didn't, but I do believe that God honors like your place of God will honor your place of service to the local church, to your commitments and to the little things that maybe people don't always yeah. see that he will graduate you to other things. If you prove your faithfulness in those things, I don't know. I don't know if that story will mean something to somebody, but it reminds me, you reminded me of that when you said, just go and do, go and serve. There's something that can be done. Yeah. There's a green room that can be cleaned up. There's a music library that could be cleaned up there. You know, go sing in the choir. I think the first thing that goes when we, either we become artists or we're chasing that artist dream is our serve. Right. We, we want to be served. We want people right. to applaud for us. Tell us how great we are Buy our music uh, put us on a stage somewhere so we can shine. And that is a, that is a goal that we almost all go after unknowingly. We don't realize that it's, it's harmful in the long term, but we lose our serve. And it's because it is when, when our commerce, when the, when we're making a living by on our, with our calling, it gets so tricky. Yeah. It really does. Like our serve gets messed up because we have, we've got to, Pay for it. Well, we get used to being served. So right. this was this was an issue. I would come home, let's just say from the Young Messiah tour, right? And the Young Messiah tour was um, in any tour we ever did, took such good care of us. I mean, oh, the yeah. best buses, uh, the and best you're only singing food, a couple you, songs a night. Oh, you only sing a couple songs a night. You don't carry your luggage. Like you, you wake up on the bus and your luggage is already in your room, and you you literally get to do whatever you want throughout the day. The pay is really good. Uh, the per diem was amazing. You stay at the nicest hotel in the, in the biggest cities in the country. And then I come home to two toddlers right? and my wife having, you know, having to take care of them and be both parents for two, three weeks at a time during the Christmas holidays. And I come back being an artist, being a diva, like, and it was so hard to turn that switch off that one of the things that really, it really, I had to work on and it was good for me was coming home to reality, reality and going, I can't be that way. And my wife would call me on all the time. She'd say, you're being an artist right now. You're right. being a diva right now. You're, you know, this is not, I'm not your road manager and I'm, you know, this is not the tour life. This is real life. So I need you to help me fold the laundry. You know, I need you to get the kids in the shower. I need you to, you know, help me make dinner instead of just showing up when you smell the food. So, again, I just think for anybody listening to this that wants to be an artist, work on your serve. Right. Because that is what ultimately, what did Jesus say? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And if we really want to obey the call of Christ in our lives, we have to learn to be servants. And, you know, I, I think the people that, that make it as in the long run that eventually have to, they figure that out. Right. Uh, because the other way just will, it will destroy you in the end. Are you tired? Do you get, are you get tired of get compared to Christopher Cross? Or do yes. You not hear okay. So here's a funny story. Yeah. I bought the. You're Christ- not nearly as, not that he's one dimensional, but you have way more sides than he does. Well, you're kind, but, I remember when I bought that record. Um, are we rolling? Yeah. This is good. Um, when I bought that record, I was playing it on my stereo at home when I was when I was still, you know, in high school. Yeah. 
And my mom comes in from the grocery store and she goes, you recorded a song for us? And I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, that's you on the record. And I'm like, no, mom, that's Christopher Cross. And I, I, you know, she's still, but when she was still alive, yeah. if she would hear Christopher Cross, she goes, that sounds exactly like you. And I'd be like, oh, I hear that's kind of cool. Just for grins, would you sing Think of Laura right now? I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Think of Laura. <laughs> laugh, don't cry. I know she'd want it that way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's another voice I just tried to imitate. That whole right. record, that whole Christopher Cross record, I could imitate everything he did on that album. So here's a funny story that that Omar, again, I didn't get all that Omar conversation. And he talks about uh, when they were doing sailing. And Chris wanted this 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 um uh, synth solo in the middle and omar was just like no man i got, I got an idea for that I, I got this piano thing in my head and he said he and chris went back and forth all morning on it and he just couldn't convince chris that he wanted you know what he wanted for what his idea was so he said the the label guys came in and wanted to take chris to lunch so they took him to lunch and as soon as he walked out the door he told his engineer quick Hit record and he runs into the piano. One take. Maybe the greatest piano solo in pop history. In pop history. One he said it was one take. And it was exactly what he had in his head. That's such a great bridge. I mean the instrumental bridge. It's we can per- all sing it's it. Perfection. Right? Yes. Oh, it's just so good. He he had so many stories, man. I ran into Speaking of my random weird brain, I ran into Bonnie Keane the other day. You know Bonnie. Oh yeah, I'm gonna have all three of them on. Oh, they're all three going to come on and do the podcast. Yeah, you know that. Like I, my my arranging the way I hear harmonies. It's like if Stephen V and First Call had a baby. Like that's how I hear harmonies. Like their their stuff. Yeah, unbelievable. They were so unique. They were so love, and all three of them are just the most wonderful people. I know, wonderful. Yeah, and even when they. Uh, took a turn and did the record Sacred Journey. Yes. One of the most underrated Christian oh, records of all Front time. to back. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with and you. and all that. But anyway, I was like, this is random. She was sitting at a table at Jay Alexander's a couple of weeks ago. I ran into her and I was like, hey, Bonnie, um, are you singing backgrounds on Ride Like the Wind? She was like, no, but I wish I was. <laughs> I just listened to that. And I'm like, that's Bo- Bonnie King is singing. I know she's singing in there. Wow. I know she's going, da, 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 da. But she wasn't. Hey, you know, one of the fun things I've got to do lately is there's a friend of mine. His name's Grady Nichols. He's a really great sax player in Tulsa and had some hits on, on jazz radio. Uh, he and I became friends, and he's got this really great band. And they do, like, they are the number one band in Tulsa for, like, like Don't tell me you're singing Ride Like the Wind with them. You just wait. Sorry, I took. Your so question. they, so they, they were like, "Hey, would you ever want to do?" Like, we started doing some Christmas shows together, and they've become like a Tulsa tradition. We do this Christmas show every year, and he was like, "Hey, would you ever want to join us when we do like these, like these closed events, like you know, like uh, when you you need to hire a band to do all the standards and stuff?" I'm like, "Yeah, what kind of songs are you doing?" So. I do shows with them every now and then, and I get to sing Ride Like the Wind oh, and Sailing and um, Heart to Heart. And, oh, yeah, that's that's actually kind of my song now. I've mastered that song. Shut uh, up. What a Fool Believes, Peg, 
Uh, just all these songs that I Peg. grew up singing. That was a slow burn on Peg because I missed that as a kid. Oh, man. There's so much good stuff out there that I, I, I just, when I got on the microphone for the first time, you know, you've sung, you've sung these songs in the car a hundred times. A hundred But times. when you get up with a live band and a microphone, it's a completely different situation. And that was, I, you know what? Honestly, it helped my voice because I've been singing worship music for so long that I kind of forgot how to sing pop music again. And so over the last three or four years, I've been singing with Grady and his band and singing all these songs that I just grew up singing. And uh, I, it just, it's just been so fun. I will have to say, uh, on one show, they wanted me to sing um, Heart and Soul by Hugh Lewis and the News. I'm like, oh, I love that song. So then I'm, I'm, I'm in rehearsal with it. And I get to hot loving every night. And I went, oh, you know what? No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to say no on this one. Let's just pull that one from, because I'm just like, first of all, I'm going to feel really weird singing hot loving every night. And, uh, and it's about a one night stand. I'm like, how many of these songs did I sing growing up that I had no idea what no they're idea about what they were until about. I'm like this age. And so it's funny. My wife and I started going through all the lyrics of all these songs going, okay, next time you do a showcase with them. Let's just make sure we're not singing about anything right. we're going to regret or somebody's going to capture on a cell phone and I'm going to be like, oh, I can't believe I'm singing that. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I really want to, we were doing my band and I, a few years ago, we were doing a, like an amphitheater, like summer concert in our communities where we live in Jackson. And I really wanted to do dancing in the moonlight. And it was a guy that was playing guitar for me. He's like, I just don't know if you want to open up your set with, we get it. Almost every night. <laughs> it just seems so, it seems so, uh, uh, you know, back then we're just like, we didn't think about that. Right. And now we, when you sing it live, yeah, when you sing it out loud in front of people, right. you're like, oh no. Right. Oh, shoot. I probably right. shouldn't sing yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Oh, that's so funny. I would love to come here, hear you sing those songs. Okay, so do you have a favorite for him record? Like, does one stand out? It's like, that's my favorite top to bottom. So I have them in three different categories. So my the, the one I'm most proud of is the Christmas record. Yeah, um, Season that was of Love. A thick, big record. Oh, yeah. Ralph Carmichael Lots did all the strings. and It's like 12 or 13 cuts, right? Wasn't yeah, it? Uh, no, it wasn't. I don't think it was that big. But... um. I just remember, and, and again, I've shared this on a couple of different podcasts, that I'm proud of that record because it was at a time we were making it with Don, Don Cook. And Mark was kind of our kind of our manager at the time. Like, we didn't have Mike Atkins yet. So Mark was doing a lot of the managing stuff, and, and was we were in some negotiations with the, the label. And, and then Marty was about to get married, so he was making all of his, his wedding prep stuff. And then Kirk, well, and so I, <laughs> I love you, Kirk. Um, <laughs> but I just remember Don and I were workhorses, and I would sing a lot of those vocals, uh, those thick vocals in the studio. I would sing all the parts, and then those guys, whenever they weren't on the phone or at a label lunch, they would come in and re-record what I had recorded. And so I, I just, I just really love 
the making of that record. I'm very proud of that. Of That's that record. And the Christmas record, you swing big. Like, you, oh yeah, you kind of swing for the fences. Yeah. I also found out for the first time that I sang with a lisp during that record. When I listened back to the final mix of "I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, a Wonderful Christmas," if you no, go back you and listen, oh yes, you go back and let's do it now. You will hear my lisp in there, and I was like, oh, I guess I need to work on that before we make the next record. Uh, so a little Easter egg there. Uh, my favorite record that, that, that I'm most that I think is our best record is the Ride. Okay, I think our Ride is the best record. Now, uh, was the that message with Don and so that was Don Cook, Michael Omardian, and Peter Wolf. Okay, produced that record. Uh, that's I think it's the best sounding record we've ever done. You go back and listen to it now; it stands up. Dude, Nature of Love is a masterclass in in composition and just sonic goodness. The way Omar put that song together is just, it blows my mind still today to listen to that. Um, our, our most loved record is our hymns record. Okay. Uh, it is, you know, what's crazy is you would think that our, our, the song that for him has the most streams of would be like basics Basics. of life. Yeah. It's not. It's "Be Thou My Vision" from the uh, from the hymns record. Isn't that something? Yeah, that's crazy. So, what are you looking up right now? I was looking up. I couldn't remember a title of a song that I wanted to bring up. What record? It was "Basics of Life." Oh, and I was gonna is "When It Comes to Living." Oh my gosh! When it comes to living. So you know that that was a song that. Uh, so Reed Arvin, Don Cook, again, go back and listen to the Don Cook, Dave Clark episode. Reed Arvin was one of the producers on the Face the Nation record. And he would he would sneak into Don's sessions. 1991. Yep. And listen to what Don was doing. And oh, I, oh, yes. And Don had me singing something pretty crazy. I don't remember what song it was, but he had me singing way up there in a, in a real high rock voice, kind of a foreigner high rock voice. And Reed was like, Oh, I'm going to outdo that. So he was producing when it comes to living and he had me just going off and it was so fun. But then we listened back to it. It was like, what in the world am I doing? And it, we were, it's just like he was trying to outdo Don in making my voice go to this crazy place. Right. And that's one of the songs, honestly, I can't get through. I can't listen to that all the way through. Um, yes. I, I just, I don't know. I just, I'm like, yeah, I was trying too hard there. Oh, <laughs> if I'm being honest, yeah, I, I think it I was a number one song it. though. Though it was, it was. I, I was think it was a number one song. I couldn't remember if it was. A it was. I think it was a number one song. Back in those record. days, I wouldn't have. I couldn't. If I was a fan of an artist, I, I would never know what was a single, what was it, because I would learn. Back in those days, you would learn the whole record. Yeah, yeah. You just listen to it over and over again. That's what I would do. Well, and don't you kind of miss that now? I do. You know, it's I mean, it's an era of EPs and singles and. You know, we would miss the just over the horizon moments in a record. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, that was a number one song though. So you would that have heard was it on a the radio. single too. Mm-hmm. See, I don't know. Yep. But that was such a. Oh, we were all so proud of y'all. <laughs> all your little fans out there were like, "Listen, to our guys, man, they're killing." Listen to that right there. Uh, Look at what they're doing. Yeah. They're, again, go back and listen to Dave Clark, Don Cook. Uh, Dave Clark has a great story about that song because that yeah, was, was that really chronicled too. what he was going through in his life at that point. Oh yeah. Yeah. There was a video to that song, wasn't there? Uh-huh. I hated making music videos. Oh, yeah. Hated it. 
I always felt so awkward. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this podcast, I am loving it. A guy like me, you you should know that I'm your audience for this. I love it so much. What made you start this podcast? You know, I've enjoyed reconnecting with so many people that I toured with and made records with, producers, musicians, songwriters, artists that share a similar space in my life, which is rare. I think it's rare for anybody to um, to be able to have those people in your life that really know what you went through and, and know what that era of that life was like that a lot of people have kind of forgotten about. And I do believe that the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s Christian music has kind of been forgotten a little bit because there's not really a lot of recurrent Christian radio. There's not like a uh, classic Christian radio station, like there's classic rock or classic country, you know? It just doesn't really exist at this point. And I feel like there's a lot of great music. I know there is a ton of great music out there that people have either, either forgotten or they haven't heard yet. And so part of doing this podcast was I want people to reconnect with that great music Especially, I just think the greatest era of Christian music was like, like 80, 1980 to 2000. Great musicians, great songwriting. There's just been nothing like it since then. And so I just wanted to have conversations about that era right. and then point people back to that music so they can enjoy it again. Do you think that, so you, you follow that, your career in that industry, which was so amazing with then an entire decade or more as a pastor. Do you think you look back? So it's, uh, it's fun to listen to these stories, but what's, you know, there are a lot of laughs, a lot of interesting details, but what starts siphoning out are the life lessons. Like, do you think your years as a pastor really helped reframe your experiences? Yeah. A hundred percent, you know, life in, in full-time ministry means you get a little bit closer to people, a lot closer to people than you do in the artist world. You know, I remember thinking before I went on uh, on staff as a full-time worship pastor that I'm feeding people with an eye drop. Eye dropper every night. You know, I, I'm just I'm I'm just giving people enough of of the gospel and then I'm going to the next town. And I felt like being on a worship staff that I'm with the same church every weekend with the same people then I'm able to feed people more with a fire hose and really pour myself out into the community, into the lives of families, that people get to know me more than just my voice and my and the picture on an album cover. And that's what, when you're a touring artist, that's all anybody gets to see. Maybe the odd interview here and there that you go a little bit deeper. But when you become a pastor, or you become part of a local church, you tend to go deeper with people and you you have more relationship than you really did. As an artist, sometimes you tend to close a lot of your, a lot of parts of your life off. Right. Being in ministry forces you to open those doors. It really is. And does. yeah, and you just you you change. And right. one of the things I think is really important is the story of hope. And uh, I think so many times we look at our heroes, whether they're athletes or uh, people in business or especially artists in the music realm, we look at them on a different plane. Like they don't go through the same things I go through there. They don't deal with the same issues I do. And telling these stories of sitting down with my friends going, yeah, they do. We all do. <laughs> Anything you've gone through, we've been through. And we want to tell you how we got through it, how we got to the other side of it. And then right. add those stories of 
here's how we made this record and what we were thinking, and here's what was going on in my life at the time, and now look what God is doing with me. And so I think stories of hope and stories of of just keep going, just keep moving. Uh, to use a for him lyric, there's a voice calling, keep walking. You're not alone in this world. And I think that's one of the major uh, reasons I want to keep doing this podcast is to let people know they're not alone and they can hear their story in the stories of the artists that they've loved from those decades. I love it because it's a, so many times it's, um, you're right. The, the artist's life, the pastor life, they're completely different. They serve the body differently. And they work like this when they work well together. Like yeah. a lot of times it's the song that gets, gets the people to that place with the Lord. And it's the pastor that disciples them through the, the to the deeper waters. Yeah. You've got to do both. Yeah. And it is, you know, there's a transition there um, that the artist is about in its, in its purest form. The artist is about, look at me, love me, tell me I'm awesome buy my art and then, uh, wait on pins and needles until I give you more art, right? right? We want you to come back. We want you to love us. And when you don't love us and you don't buy our art, then we don't have a career, you know? And so we make our living on you loving what we do. In ministry, it's not about that. It's it's the other side of the coin. It's like, it doesn't, we don't, it's not that we don't care if you love us or not, but that's not what it's about. We want to meet your needs. We want to see what we can do to help you in your situation. And it's the it's the opposite of the way the artist is wired. I, I I talk about this with worship leaders all the time. Is that you've got to love the people in front of you more than the art that you're creating for them, and and it's that gets skewed. I think in the artist's life right. is that we want to make stuff that we love and that we think you'll buy, and in the process we're going to share Jesus with you and we're going to share as much love with you as we can. As a worship pastor or a worship leader. You do use your art to draw people and to engage them, but then ultimately you want to step out of the way right. so that they just fix their eyes on Jesus. Right. And it, it's, it's a subtle twist, but it's something that takes time to learn. And it's, it's all about the serve. It's when you can turn from, hey, serve me and serve my needs as an artist to I just want to serve you wherever you are and whatever you right. need. That's, to me, that's the biggest thing I've learned from going from the from the artist life to the pastor life is I don't have to survive on you loving everything I do all the time. Yeah. And uh I, it's all about me to it's all about you. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think and I, I probably even go further than you go. I always I tell worship leaders all the time like your church does not care about your songs. They do not your songs are not going to change your life. You serve them. Like you, you learn their language and speak their language and that will make you a good worship leader. That's right. And, but God, God still cares about your voice. God still cares about what you like. He gave you those desires. He, he wired you in a, in a, a very unique way so that you provide just like a chef, right? Every chef's just a little bit different, but they can all get to this place where they really just satisfy your palate and make you excited to eat their food. Well, God gave musicians the same instinct to right. create things that make people awaken and love life even deeper, or maybe have a companion for their journey. You know, that's what our that's what our songs do. And um, you know, again, go back to what I tell worship leaders a lot is that I feel like there there are kind of three rules that we want to live by as artists and worship leaders is 
Number one, love the gift that God gave you. Love it because it's a piece of himself. Love that gift. Make the most of it because it's honoring to him. Go to God with your precious gift that you have slaved over and and worked and fine-tuned and made it the best song, the best piece of art that you can make, and then present it to him as an offering and a gift. Don't just give him your you know, the stuff you just worked a, a couple of hours on or just threw together and just take it to him. That's not honoring to him. Uh, do something that's really amazing and give it to God. That's loving your gift. But make sure you love God's word. Mm-hmm. And if you don't love God's word, then you don't know what he wants. You don't know what he wants for you. You don't know who he is. The Bible's not about us. It's about God. Mm-hmm. And so learn to love the word because then the word will inform you what gift he wants you to bring to him and how Absolutely. he wants you to bring it. And then number three, love the people in front of you mm-hmm. because that can trump everything that came before. You need to love everyone that's in front of you more than you love your gift. And and that can that can complete you as a worship leader and as an artist. Go make great art. That's great. Give it to your church, but make sure that it it lines up with the word of God and that you want to line it up with the word of God, right? That's where the love of God, love of God's word comes in. You want to honor it in everything that you do. But then bottom line is serve your people, love them. Everything you make may not be suitable for them. Everything that you create may not be what they need at that moment. So love your gift, love God's word, love people. If you can really wrap your um, your creativeness around those three things that I think you can get close to being what God created you to be in the first place. So you, you mentioned that the eight, like from 80 to 2000 was kind of the golden era of Christian music. Why do you think that was? I mean, I agree, but what are your thoughts about it? You know, there's something to the level of musicianship and songwriting and artistry that was so dense in those days and because the herd was thinner you know there right now you have thousands and thousands and thousands of artists out there on spotify and apple and streaming on tiktok and every platform you can imagine everyone has a chance to get their music heard and so the 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 filter isn't there like it was back in those days we talk about having anr guys in our lives right. that would help refine us and and only sign the best artists that were out there. A lot of people that get, didn't get signed who now can go out and make all the music that they want. Right. So it was denser. It was that way in pop music, right? Yep. In, the, in, the, in the 70s and 80s of pop music, you had to be really, really good to get your songs on the radio and get your album in the stores. It's the same way in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s of Christian music. There weren't 3,000 Christian artists. There were just a handful at every at every label and so you had to get to this certain bar of excellence and artistry to even get your music heard and get signed right. by a label so the talent pool was a lot smaller right and and you had great um producers that would come in and make some of the most incredible stuff Michael Amardian, Brent Bourgeois, Charlie Peacock, Brown Bannister you know just King. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh, just just legendary names that 
only they could make that kind of music. I think also that, um, and I'm not, I'm not a basher of worship music. Obviously, I'm a worship leader and worship writer, but things change when everything that we that that they put on the radio had to be replicated by a worship band and sung by a congregation. Yes, you completely change the game in songwriting. You completely change the game in writing melodies, chord changes, and everything to where what they would call has to be replicated or sung in churches. Now I think they're missing the mark because most of what I hear on the radio, my church can't sing. They're in crazy keys and all that. I won't go into that, but I do think like the songwriting was key. I'm not going to say it was worse, but it was just the goals. The goal was changed. So we underestimate our audience that they won't be able to sing along with really great music because people sang along to every song at a Christian concert I went to right. in the 80s and 90s. I go to classic rock concerts, and people sing along to every single song, every word, every phrase of those artists, no matter what key it's in. Nobody cares because they love it. It's great music. It means something to them. Where it has been watered down, and rightfully so, is because every church in America now wants to have modern worship, right. and they want to sound like Elevation or Hillsong or Bethel or Jesus culture, and you have you have musicians that aren't as seasoned, and you know you've got a young bass player that steps in last minute, and right. because the pro is out, and so how's this bass player going to play all these weird Michael Omardian chords and structures? They won't. That you have to bring music into a place if it's going to be played on Sundays in the local church. That it has to be easy. It has to be four chords, five chords that are all just rearranged right. in certain ways. And uh, I think it's more because of that. Uh, it's a funny story. We took a, a band out on our 25th, For Him's 25th anniversary tour. Really great players, but they mostly played in church. And when we handed them these Don Cook, Michael Amartian charts, they were just looking at them like reading a the foreign language. And the, the yeah, they're just like, wait, there are four key changes in the bridge? Right. Where does that happen? We're like in pop music in the 80s and 90s. Right. That's what we did. And it was incredible. And they're just, I mean, it took them a while to get used to playing that way because it wasn't, you know, one, four, five, six minor that they, that every other song was built on that they're doing week in and week out. And so I think that's what's missing in a lot that, that music has been simplified for the, so many worship bands that have to replicate it. And that's, that's where the money is in Christian music is you got to get this in churches like tomorrow. Right. We, we got to get this sung in churches and on worship teams as soon as possible because the money now is in CCLI. It's in, right. it's not it, in ra- album sales no. and radio. Right. Yeah. So that's, if that's where the money is, then that's where the push is going to be. Right. And so it, it's just unfortunate that we don't get great music. I will say there, there's a band that I just continue to champion them because they feel old school to me, like they would have been, done well in the 90s, and it's a band called Citizens. Zach yes. Boland and Citizens continue to just make really interesting, beautiful, complex music that I can sing along to the second I hear it. You know, and I, when it comes on, I'm like, I got this. Yeah, I love it, but it's interesting. And bands like that, I hope, just continue to multiply so that there is a place where this music can be heard again. Yeah. 
Hey, thanks for listening. Join me every Monday for new stories from the Christian music industry and beyond. If you want more content like this, along with a lot of great music, join me for Worship with Andy Chrisman, airing on 500 stations around the world every weekend. And when you get a sec, run over to my website, andychrisman.net. For information about my professional vocal coaching and an incredible new resource for worship pastors called The Worship Table. See you next time on the One Degree of Andy podcast.